You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. We continue in our sermon series through the book of Matthew, and we find ourselves here in the fourth chapter. And may we, as God's people, Truly live on God's word and feast on him today. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Beloved, this is God's holy word. You may be seated. I want to start by asking a question, and the question is, have you ever seen a movie or read a book and thought to yourself, haven't I read this story before? I think I've heard this story before, and this happens all of the time in literature and with movies because any good story is worth retelling. So... Here's an example. This is the classic story plot line where you have a foreigner come to a new and foreign land and they encounter the indigenous people. They encounter those who are in the land and there's, there's a strangeness. There's, there's this encounter where the foreigner coming in does not understand the ways. And yet, over the course of the story... He starts to assimilate to the culture and he actually becomes part of the native people, right? This is, I mean, you see this story, this plot line throughout all sorts of literature and movies from C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet to James Cameron's Avatar to Pocahontas to The Last Samurai and so on and so forth, right? Any good story is worth retelling, 
And here in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see this story, this really good story. This is the best story that has ever been told. This is the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of the Kingdom. In this story where where we see Jesus' birth and his preparation for ministry, and now here we see him in the desert. And yet... What the, what the gospel writer Matthew is wanting for us to know as we're reading this chapter is that this is also another story that this story points back to. So remember, we finished the, the book of Genesis and the people of Israel were in the land of Egypt and they were in a really good spot. They were in the land of Goshen. Everything was great. They were provided for. And then 400 years later, as you you cross into the book of Exodus, 400 years later, there's a new pharaoh in Egypt. And this new pharaoh does not like the people of Israel because they're growing and they're multiplying. They pose a threat to the kingdom of Egypt. And so pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. So they're forced to hard labor. They're slaves. And we know the story. God raises up an Israelite. He raises up Moses to deliver the people from the land of slavery. And he splits the Red Sea for the people of God to walk through on dry land. And then as the people of God make it to the other side, God swallows up Israel's enemies in the sea. And then what we see is God's people in the wilderness. Out of Egypt through the sea, into the wilderness. And early on, as I was, as I was studying this, this passage, Douglas O'Donnell was really helpful in pointing out these similarities that we see between the story of the Exodus and what we see here in Matthew 4. Remember, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Egypt for safety as they flee from King Herod. And then, several years later, They take Jesus out of Egypt and dwell in the land of Galilee, in Nazareth. And then we see Jesus in the waters of baptism as he's preparing for ministry. And then we see here in this chapter, Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus out of Egypt, through the sea, and into the wilderness. These are two very similar stories that Matthew is drawing our attention to. They're so similar, and yet at the same time, they are so different. Because Israel, as a son of God, is very different from Jesus, the son of God. And so as we look at this wilderness wandering that Jesus embarks on, we see a natural divide. We see a natural breakup in the text. There's three temptations. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and so we will move through this passage with those three headings. First, tempting food. Second, tempting glory. And third, tempting kingdoms. First, tempting food, verses one through four. Second, tempting glory, verses five through seven. And third, tempting kingdoms, verses 8 through 11. So first, tempting food. 
Before we dive into the actual temptations, it's important to note that this is a similar story, right, to the people of Israel and the land of Egypt coming out of their exodus, but this is also a familiar story because this points back to the Garden of Eden, where all of sin began. Genesis 3 is where we're first introduced to the tempter that we see in Matthew 4, also known as the devil, also known as the deceiver, the serpent. Satan, as an angelic being who is created by God, rebels against God and leaves a whole host of angelic beings to rebel against God as well. And here in Matthew 4, we see Satan doing what he has been doing since the Garden of Eden. He is deceiving. He is tempting. He tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden with enticing words. And here in this passage, he's employing the same strategies as he's tempting Christ. And these temptations, they are temptations. They are real temptations. And this is also a test. This is really important to, to note that this is a test for Jesus. Jesus was just baptized in the waters of repentance for sinners as he prepares for ministry. And we heard this voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we hear the voice from heaven and then here in these 11 verses, we get to see the Son of God, prove his sonship. This is a test as Jesus is embarking on his earthly ministry. And so with this as the setting, as we journey through these temptations, would you look with me at verse three as we take a look at the first temptation? Tempting food. Verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, we, we just heard the father say from heaven, this is my beloved son. And then Satan says, if you are the son of God. This is very familiar. This is Genesis 3 all over again, where God creates all things good, and he says to Adam and Eve, you can have everything that I have created except one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, verses later, Satan comes in and says, did God really say that? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan says, did God really say that? If you are the son of God. Satan is questioning Jesus' identity, and he's not only questioning his identity, he's bringing in a temptation for food. And this truly is a temptation. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and Matthew makes it a point at the end of verse 2 to say he was hungry. And we know that God is is with us, right? This Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is truly man. This is God in the flesh. So he is truly hungry because he is truly man. And this would have been extra tempting for Jesus 
Unlike us, if we were in this situation, even if we wanted to give in and turn loaves, turn stones into loaves, we couldn't. We are not able to do this. And yet for Jesus, this would have been so easy. The one who turns water into wine, the one who walks on water, the one who calms the seas, the one who raises up the dead certainly could have turned stones into bread. This is a genuine temptation. And so Jesus responds in verse 4 by saying this. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus doesn't defend his identity. He doesn't say to Satan, no, I really am the son of God. Didn't you hear the voice from heaven? I am the son of God. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't defend his identity to Satan. Instead, he addresses the temptation head on and he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And this is really significant because this quote, this reference is pointing back to Israel's time in the wilderness after they are delivered from the land of Egypt. The nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea, and they find themselves on the other side of the wilderness, and they find that it's really hard, that they're really hungry. And this for Israel was a test as well. God rains down manna from heaven. He rains down bread for them every day. And he also gives them instruction as he is testing the people of Israel. Exodus 16.4, you don't have to turn there. This should be on the screen. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. One day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This was the test. God promises to provide for the people of Israel, but he says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, but don't gather more than a day's worth of bread. This is a test for the people of Israel because they, are, they have a choice. They can listen to God, they can obey God and gather only for the day, trusting that he will provide for the next day, or they can try and line their pockets out of this subtle or not so subtle distrust for Yahweh who has delivered them through the Red Sea. Therefore, going back to Matthew, we see that Jesus also is being tested. He is being tested in the same fashion. God has commanded for Jesus to be here in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't end up in the wilderness haphazardly or randomly. God has appointed it, which is why, in verse 1, he is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. This is God's will that he endure this temptation and not listen to Satan, but trust in his heavenly Father, and we see him do this. So Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The food that Jesus has come to feast on is the will of God. Jesus is proving this. He's hungry for food, but he is more hungry to do the will of his Father. And so he resists Satan's offer and says, man doesn't live by bread alone. I am sustained, I am nourished, I am fed because I came to do the will of my Father. It's his word that I feast on. And so we see Jesus in this first temptation pass the test. Jesus won, Satan zero. And now we move to the second temptation, tempting glory. We see the stakes are raised as we keep moving through this narrative. Tempting glory. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so we see here in the second temptation, there's a a change of scenery, right? We move from the wilderness to now the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And it's not clearly, explicitly explained how this traveling happens. Most likely through some sort of vision, some sort of uh, way where Jesus and Satan are transported to the temple. This is most likely the case because in the next temptation, they are taken to a high mountain and Jesus is able to see all the kingdoms of the earth. But the main point isn't how they get there, but what Satan tempts Jesus with when they do get there. Satan says, if you are the son of God, again, again, he's questioning Jesus's identity. And he ups his game too because he now is quoting scripture. Jesus responded in the first temptation with God's word. And so Satan, though crafty, he is not creative. He takes Jesus's cue and he distorts God's word and he manipulates the situation, and he takes God's word and he twists it for his own devices. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And this, I mean, we don't really talk like this, right? I can't remember the last time I said, lest I strike my foot against a stone, right? So what is Satan saying here? What is the temptation? What Satan is saying is, well, Jesus, if it's true that you're really the son of God, why don't you throw yourself off of the temple and in so doing fulfill Psalm 91 so that God would send his angels to to catch you so that you don't even stub your toe on the temple mount? It's this temptation that seems at first glance to be kind of a random, miraculous trick. But there is so much more to what Satan is saying. This is a temptation 
for glory. Jerusalem, the holy city, would have been the epicenter of worship for the people of God. All of God's people from Dan to Beersheba would travel and make their journey and their way to the holy city to make sacrifices, to offer prayer, to worship Yahweh. This would have been a place of high visibility with a lot of hustle and bustle. But more than that, this was where God's people worshiped God and were waiting for Messiah. And so what Satan is doing here is he is tempting Jesus to make himself known. He says, if you're the son of God, why don't you just show it to the people? Why don't you prove it? It's, it's a temptation for a grab at glory. And yet, it's a temptation to grab for glory apart from the Father's will. Therefore, verse 7, Jesus says, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And you can almost sense a bit of righteous anger here. He says, I don't know if you heard me the first time, Satan, but I'll say it again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And at first, when I was first reading this, I was thinking, I think Jesus is saying to Satan, hey, Satan, you shall not put me to the test because I'm God in the flesh. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yes, Jesus is Emmanuel with us, God with us, but this is not what Satan, this is rather, this is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here is he is refuting Satan is that he is saying, it is written, I shall not put the Lord my God to the test by grabbing at glory right now. And again, this is a quote from Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 6, 16. This is so important. This is actually another reference to Israel's wilderness wanderings. We know that the people of Israel were hungry in the desert, in the wilderness, and they were also thirsty. They had no source of water in the the arid desert, and so they start putting Moses to the test, and they start complaining against Moses, and ultimately, the Bible says that they were complaining against God. They were putting God to the test. They were irreverently questioning God and putting God on trial. And so Exodus 17, 7 says this. This should be on the screen. And he, that is Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Satan is saying, Prove it. Prove it that the Lord is really among you. Prove it that you're really God in the flesh. Why don't you grab for glory now? And yet what Jesus is doing is he is not prematurely grabbing for glory before the cross. And this is a similar kind of conversation that Jesus actually has with Peter In Matthew 16, as Jesus is saying to Peter and to the disciples, he's warning them. He's saying, I'm about to die. I'm about to be murdered. I'm about to be crucified. And Peter says, never. He opposes Jesus and he says, no, this cannot be so. 
And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is satanic for Jesus to grab at glory, to grab like Adam and Eve for the, for the tree, for Israel to, to resist and to push up against God and to put him to the test. And so Jesus, as the son of God, he resists Satan and he trusts his heavenly father who will glorify him at the proper time. Jesus succeeds yet again. Jesus too, Satan zero. Now this brings us to the third and final temptation, tempting kingdoms. Look with me at verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And again, through what appears to be a vision, Satan now moves from the pinnacle of the temple to the peak of a mountain. And he shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. Satan is crafty and he knows how to tempt. He's been doing it for a while. And so he puts before Jesus the crescendo of all of these temptations. He puts before Jesus the apex of these temptations and it has to do with kingship. And as we know in the book of Matthew, Matthew is very concerned about the kingdom of heaven. According to Matthew, as we have learned, Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. At the very end of the book of Matthew, we see Jesus ruling and reigning and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is at the end of Matthew, and here at the beginning of Matthew, Satan is tempting Jesus with some semblance of kingship. This is so intentional. However, Jesus is after a different kind of kingdom because he is a different kind of king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 9 with me. Rather, verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Jesus says, enough is enough. Get out of here, Satan. I'll have no more of this, Satan. And when Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God, what he's saying is, I will not worship anyone except God my Father, because my allegiance is to him. I'm not going to bow down to you for any offer of any kingdom. He's saying, I shall worship the Lord my God, and him only shall I serve. I bend and submit the knee to my Father who is in heaven. And once again, this is really important, what Jesus is quoting here. The scripture that he's quoting is yet again Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 6 
13, and this yet again is related to Israel's own wilderness wanderings. Matthew wants us to to get it over and over and over again that there's two stories happening here. Two very similar scenarios going on. Israel, as they are delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea and as they're wandering in the wilderness, they, they arrive at Mount Sinai where Moses ascends the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments of God. The first one, which states, you shall have no other gods before me, and Moses comes down from the mountain and he can't even get down to the mountain before seeing the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet Israel is forming and fashioning a god before them to worship. And this replays itself over and over and over and over again for the people of God. Worshiping and bowing down to other gods. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Yet Israel does not listen and feast on God's word and his will. Instead, they bow down to king's stomach and feed the flesh. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet Israel, over and over again, is putting God to the, que- to the test and questioning his provision. The very one who delivered them and parted the Red Sea and putting God on trial. And you shall have no other gods before me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And yet we find Israel worshiping a golden calf in their wilderness wanderings. These are two very similar stories. But this is so massively different. This is a reenactment of the story of Israel that we find here in Matthew 4. And yet... The difference is the nation of Israel and Jesus that Matthew is writing about are so completely different because Jesus is the faithful son of God. If you don't get anything from this text, from this sermon, get this. Matthew is putting before us that Jesus is the faithful son of God as opposed to faithless Israel. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is the faithful son of God. God said it in the waters of baptism and he proves it here in this text. That Jesus is the one who feasts on God's word alone. That Jesus is the one who trusts in his father completely and perfectly, not putting him into the test, not grabbing for glory, but trusting in the father's perfect timing. Jesus is the one who doesn't give in to tempting kingdoms by bowing down to Satan, but instead he submits to the father. Jesus is gloriously victorious in the wilderness here. And at the end, at verse 11, it says that the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. They were ministering to him. They came and drew near to him. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve are kicked out, and the cherubim are guarding the garden. This is a completely opposite scene from Eden and from Israel's wilderness wanderings because Jesus is actually the faithful son of God. 
where Adam and Eve failed, where Israel failed, where we fail. And the way Jesus makes his ascent to the throne, the way he makes his ascent to the end, to Matthew 28, where he says, all power and all authority have been given to me is by means of his suffering. We see this text is a picture of the entire life of Christ. That he endured temptation. That he endured such hostility from sinners. We see Jesus coronated as the king of heaven because he was crowned with a crown of thorns. We see Jesus, the faithful son of God, adorned as the savior king because he moves through the cross. He was tempted in all ways. Here in the wilderness, but in his entire life, he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. Wilderness temptations before victory. Humiliation before glory. Cross before crown. Jesus is the faithful son of God. What are the implications of this? What's the the so what? Why does this matter? Jesus is the faithful son of God. The reason this matters is because he is the faithful son of God. Anyone who trusts in this one, in this son, this faithful one, gets life. This is eternally important. It means we get salvation. And we get salvation. We're not like Jesus in this story. We're more like Satan. We're more like Israel. We're faithless. We're constantly questioning God. We're constantly feeding our flesh. We're constantly deceived. We're constantly pushing back. We're pushing against the faithful one, and in his faithfulness, he comes to us. We saw Jesus in the waters last week for sinners, and we see Jesus in the wilderness for sinners. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. Crowned as the king because of the suffering of his death. So that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Oh, would you let Jesus taste death for you instead of tasting it yourself? church, would we come again to this faithful son who gave his very life, who lived perfectly for us, for faithless people? What do you do with a king like this? You worship him. So implications, Jesus is salvation. Him being the faithful son of God means we get salvation 
as we come to Christ by faith. Applications. Jesus is our salvation and he is our example. This is the application for us, followers of Christ. We're followers of Christ. We're disciples, which means that no servant is greater than his master. Jesus endured such hostility and so many temptations. Oh, certainly we will too. In this life, there is trouble. But Jesus says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we follow after Jesus. We follow him. And I cannot close this sermon without drawing out a few applications from the text. What does this look like as we engage in battle, as we are tempted, as we come up up and against forces that, that we have no idea? First one out of this text that we see is be sober-minded. Don't fall asleep on Satan. I think there's two ditches in the Christian life. We can either think that, G- that Satan is everywhere, behind every chair. He's the cause for every traffic jam. He's the reason why I'm late to work. And then there's the ditch of not being aware, not thinking about him enough, that we actually have an adversary, that we have an enemy. These two ditches. And I'd imagine that most of us, not all, but probably most of us don't acknowledge Satan's presence enough. We think he's only active when it's some unexplainable dark presence. And yes, that's true. Satan does manifest himself in this way. And he also operates and works in very ordinary ways. According to 1 John, John describes throughout his letter that Satan operates through the world around us, through the flesh, and through his own agency. The world, the flesh, the devil. Right? And this doesn't mean, what I'm not saying is that when we are influenced by the world and when we give in to the flesh that we're possessed by Satan. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when we act out in the flesh, we are really resembling Satan. We're, we're not resembling and imaging Christ. We're actually more so aligned with Satan, with the one who, who brings deception. And so... Yes, there are extraordinary displays of satanic activity and there are typical and ordinary ways in which Satan operates. I love this quote from David Pallison. I think he, he hits the nail on the head. He says, the Bible never makes the evil one the primary actor and scripture does not bring him in only when something unusually strange or evil is going on. The real devil is utterly normal and his role is fully integrated into daily life. Mundane evil is the devil's business. And of course it is. He is the tempter, as we see in Matthew 4, but he's also the deceiver. He would so love for us to not think about him at all. As J.C. Ryle puts it, the worst chains are those which are neither felt nor seen by the prisoner. 
And so, there's a lot to say. I feel like this is another sermon, right, on spiritual warfare. There's a lot to say about this. And Matthew will address this in this gospel as we see Jesus engaging and encountering demonic forces. And so the word for us is is not to be crippled in anxious fear, but to be sober-minded, to be ready for action. This is that word from Peter, as he says in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yet not fearful anxiety. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh, would God wake us up. So application one, be sober-minded, don't fall asleep on Satan. Second application, resist temptation in the evil one with the word of God. We see this come right out of the text. Jesus is the one who models how to do spiritual warfare. We see Paul in Ephesians 6, as he is commanding us to put on the armor of God, he says, take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And here we see Jesus do that in Matthew 4. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And this for us not only provides for us salvation, that the fact that Christ did that for us, but he's modeling for us what to do. What do we do when we have foreign thoughts that are opposed to God's very word. We don't ruminate on it. We say, it is written. And I think the trouble is, sometimes we don't know what is true and what is false. These thoughts, thought life is really deceptive. And yet, as we feast on God's word and as we are engaged with what is true, what comes at us as lies will be seen to be lies more and more as we see what is true and as we preach to our souls and as we fight and say, it is written. And lastly, application from this text, we look to Jesus. We look to the faithful son of God. As we are tempted, we look to the one who is tempted in all ways yet without sin. And let me just close with Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This text speaks for itself. We look to Jesus. We look to our Savior. We look to our model. We look to our example. We're enamored with the one who succeeded. We're enamored with the one who actually grants us power by his Spirit to do the very same thing he was doing in Matthew 3. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the faithful son of God. He is the faithful king. And he is ruling and reigning right now for his people. Would you bow your hearts as we go before this gracious king together? Father, thank you that where Adam and Israel failed, Christ succeeded. Thank you that we have a gracious Savior who not only is in the waters for us in this glorious scene, but he's also in the wilderness for us, enduring temptation, the one who knew no sin, becoming sin for us, that we would be the righteousness of you, God. You did that. Lord, I pray that you would grant us sight to see with clarity Christ, this Christ, this faithful Son of God, as we fight against the flesh, as we fight against principalities and powers, as we engage in spiritual warfare, because you have freed us to do so. We're not doing this for sonship. God, we're doing it from being made children of God. Oh, Lord, thank you. Would you empower your people? Would you empower your church here at Roots? to take up your word, to be sober-minded and to look to Jesus and to keep looking to Jesus. Oh, Lord, be glorified in this, we pray. Amen.